The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this 60th episode of the podcast on October 3rd, 2020, and we're back after a, a short break, a short little hiatus. We took most of September off, uh, but we're thrilled to be back here in the in the, in the the fall. We're joined here today uh, by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Uh, hey, Adam, how's it going? Good, Dave. 60 episodes. I thought we'd burn out after three. That's it's it's pretty wild. It seems like it's only uh, it was only a. Uh, you know, a few uh, a few weeks away, a few months ago, that uh, that uh, you uh, uh, and our our dearly uh, departed host uh, co-host uh, Ryan Hasman uh, uh, joined together to start this uh, Alberta Politics podcast. But it's been a fun ride. Yeah, it's it's been it's been lonely since Ryan died or whatever happened to him. But you know, yeah, 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 yeah. F- faded into politics or something. <laughs> uh, we remember you, Ryan. We remember yeah, you. We do. Uh, we're thrilled to be joined today uh, by. Two special guests uh, hailing from the other side of the Rocky Mountains uh, in British Columbia, Ian Bushfield and Scott Delangabom. Uh, I hope I pronounced that, <laughs> I pronounced that right. I tried it before. I apologize. Not too bad. Not too bad. Okay, wonderful. Um, speaking as 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 Dave Canoyer uh, over here. Um, <laughs> uh, our two guests from the Politicos podcast uh, be a, an excellent British Columbia podcast. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please check it out at, at politicos.ca. Uh, I'm thrilled to have them join us today to uh, talk about uh, something big that's happening in British Columbia right now. There is a provincial election happening in BC. And uh, well, first of all, welcome to the pod- welcome to the Dave Berta podcast, guys. Yeah. So how, how are things going in BC right now? They're, uh, well, we have an election underway right now. We've been at it for about a week and a bit so far. And overall, it's been a slightly boring start to the whole thing, as it looks like it's going to be an NDP uh, runaway election. Slow start, but there's only three weeks left. So it's going to be done pretty quick. Aren't nice. you so glad we don't do this like two-year-long election campaign? Like, like people complain people. a lot about it being a snap election, but it's so nice that it's just like over and done before you can like I don't know finish your isolation period if you're the president, <laughs> or or uh, or if you're a candidate who ends up uh, ends ends up contracting it. So um, uh, hope, well, ho- hopefully hopefully no candidates do. Um, Ian, if I could just 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 ask you ask you to kind of. Uh, uh, maybe explain a bit to Albertans who are looking over the looking over the Rockies, uh, trying to pay attention or trying to figure out what's going on in British Columbia. Could you maybe give us a little bit of a of a overview of what what the political landscape in BC looks like going into this election campaign? Yeah, I grew up in Alberta and I moved here in two thousand nine. And aside from a two year stint in England, have been here in Metro Vancouver since. And Alberta, as you know, aside from that brief Notley government is a pretty much a one party state, right? There's always one government that's in for a long dynasty period. And BC is largely the same with a few more times when the NDP has squeaked in. So the right and center and pretty much the all the people who aren't socialists are really good at sticking together in BC. And that formed the SoCred majorities of the 50s through the 90s with a three year interlude and the BC liberal 16 year hegemony in prior to Horgan winning. The only time the NDP has really won in BC is when that free enterprise coalition falls apart. And 
going into 2017, it was starting to get rocky because it wasn't clear what the BC Liberals stood for anymore. And I think people were looking for a bit of a change. That election came out as effectively a tie. The votes, we were looking at the percentages, it was like 40% plus or minus a few decimal places for the Liberals and the NDP. And they actually tied in seat count pretty much plus or minus one or two. And so it was a minority legislature with the Greens holding the balance of power. After some negotiations, and I highly recommend the book Matter of Confidence by Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman, if anyone wants the inside political drama story of how that confidence and supply agreement came to be written to give the NDP the balance of power and the government after that, uh, go check that out. But that's where we've been for three and a half years, is the NDP under John Horgan has been in government, largely proceeding on the platform promises that the NDP pitched with some concessions for the BC Greens. Coming out of COVID, the or coming through COVID, John Horgan and the NDP government was viewed very popular, and they still are. They're one of the few governments that ca Canadians look at and go, you know what, they're still doing a pretty good job. Like we're kind of cresting a quote unquote second wave that saw increase in case counts, but not a lot of deaths, because I think it's been more in the younger people. Um, so people aren't super upset about how COVID's been managed. And it's not the radical, angry, scary socialist government that people thought. It's been a largely competent government. Meanwhile, the liberals still don't seem to have a purpose. And that's how we got to a point where the government went, you know what, we were on schedule for a fixed election date next October, but let's pull the plug early. We don't know what COVID will be like next year. And if we do it now, maybe we can turn that minority into a crushing majority as the polls show the NDP is for, I think the first time in history, really up 10 to 20 points over their main competitor. Wow. I mean, w w one of the things that I, I've, I've really noticed over the past couple months is uh, you have, uh, I think it's Angus Reid who releases these kind of periodic quarterly approval ratings for premiers, maybe maybe even monthly or, or bi-monthly. Um, and John Horgan is doing very well in terms of personal popularity, in terms of approval rating. And that's very interesting, contrasting it with us here in Alberta, where Jason Kenney, our premier of Alberta, is not doing well in terms of his own personal popularity. So I guess maybe before we get in, before we get into the kind of the details of the election, um, can you talk, Scott, could you maybe, or could you talk a little bit about maybe how, why, why John Horgan has been able to achieve this this popularity rating that a lot of other premiers just haven't, especially some here in Alberta, Jason Kenney has, has it's just eluded him. Because when it comes to COVID or, and the specific response to COVID, looking from my perspective, it doesn't seem like there's much of a difference in terms of how BC hand has handled it and how Alberta has handled it. I mean, I think with, in the terms of Jason Kenney, he's just all the other stuff that he's doing that's unpopular on top of COVID. So so how has the BC government, um, like in terms of John Horgan's popularity, how? why has he been able to, to achieve such a high approval rating in uh, during a crisis like this? Well, he's actually had a high approval rating more or less since he took power back in 2017. And over those last couple of years, he's more or less run a fairly low-key, slight uh, center-left government that didn't really, you know, rock the boat too much, competently handled a bunch of files, it hasn't really generated a huge amount of controversy. That's 
made it really hard for the opposition to find a line of attack that's really stuck. When COVID hit, John Horgan kind of took a back seat in the handling of the pandemic. Health Minister Adrian Ditz and Public Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry were at the forefront of that. On the economic recovery side, he let Carol James, the Minister of Finance, be lead on that. So overall, he's kind of struck a moderate tone, a, a kind of competent, not particularly ambitious, but not you know, a do-nothing premier either that's more or less just carried on and handled things fairly effectively. The only real kind of controversy, if you could even call it that, around the handling of COVID was the BC government was slightly unprepared for back to school. That's a common thing from what I've seen across the country. No government really handled that well. And even that has more or less gone okay. He's running a bit of a risk that something might go wrong over the next couple of weeks that could really hurt him. But so far, everything's been managed fairly well. I think it's worth remembering that coming into government, uh, the BC Liberals had racked up a number of major scandals uh, BC ferries want, you know, we have a lot of crown corporations in BC that are viewed very pop, very highly, uh, that mostly actually date back to the brief 1970s NDP government, things like BC ferries our public insurer ICBC, but they've been mismanaged over a number of years and ICBC our public insurer auto insurer, for example, was running up billion dollar deficits every year, and it looked unsustainable. So there were these dumpster fires that needed to be put out. And a lot of those were put to Attorney General David Eby, you know, another one of the very popular cabinet members that they have here in BC. And just one after another, they're starting to deal with all of these legacies. So one of the things that Horgan can always turn to is, well, we're trying to clean up the mess the other guys left for 16 years. And there was journalists who were counting the number of times the phrase 16 years was brought up in the first you know, couple years of uh, legislative debates because the NDP just kept hammering, you know, it was 16 years of the Liberals and now we're just trying to clean up this mess. Uh, money laundering turned out to be a massive underreported scandal in BC as these like, we now have a public inquiry into money laundering that's kind of on the back seat. But there were pictures coming out when David Eby finally had these files handed over to him from the previous government because I guess they were aware, they just weren't taking fast action on it of people going in and out of casinos with like duffel bags full of dollar bills essentially just like organized crime just running rampant through the province and so people didn't like that and we're glad to see like the basic efforts to clean it up that's that's really wild we were described by the new york times as the wild west of uh political fundraising as well and so like the first bill the uh ndp green um, government. I mean, the Greens aren't in coalition, but the first bill they moved forward together was political finance reform. So banning corporate union and donations, putting caps on individual donations, uh, and really tightening all of that up because BC, I think, was one of the last provinces to bring that in. Now, there were there was no, previous to that, there were, if you correct me if I'm wrong, there was no limit in terms of political donations in British Columbia. Was that was that the case before that? Or, or, was, there, mm -hmm. or, there, or was very large limits? Yeah, and I think what the liberals were pushing for, even in the 2017 election campaign, was just more real-time uh, transparency in who's donating. So rather than put any limits, they were like, 
as long as people know who's donating, it won't be such an issue. But I think most British Columbians and most Canadians have largely turned away from that model towards the, let's just get the money out, bring it down to reasonable levels. We don't want to go down the road the U.S. is. Mm -hmm. So so our, our corporate and union donations, are they banned now in British Columbia for provincial elections? Yes, they are. And that has overall played to the NDP strengths a bit. The Liberals were very reliant on the large donations from a few donors and, and a few big corporations. And that has not necessarily gone well when it comes to changing over to a you know small donor, supporter-based fundraising model. And you know, for decades, they were the top fundraisers in British Columbian politics. And now they're like a distant second. So they're entering this campaign, not just with a leader that isn't particularly popular and doesn't connect well with the, uh, the public. They're also down in terms of fundraising and money in the bank. So w one of the things that we found in Alberta when so when when the progressive conservatives, in terms of our our our, our political fundraising limits, that, that, that I'm just curious if there's a, there's a bit of if, if you've seen some of this in, in in British Columbia is when the when corporate and union donations were banned by the NDP government, as I think it was the first bill that Rachel Notley's government pushed forward um, or introduced and passed when they formed government in 2015. Um, what we saw was the the old progressive conservatives basically shriveled up and died because they relied so heavily on corporate donations. Uh, but the Wild Rose Party and the NDP had, over the years, created a large individual donor base. So even the New Democrats didn't depend too heavily on union donations. So it wasn't really a like obviously it took it was a hit, but it wasn't as massive of a hit as the, as the progressive conservatives had. And then the Wild Rose had their large individual donor base. But what we saw when those don when corporate donations, I mean union and corporate donations, but specifically corporate donations, we saw some big examples of this. Is the money? I mean, political money follows the path of least resistance, right? So when when auto auto deal auto uh, car dealerships couldn't donate to the conservative parties, they simply started funding these massive pro Jason Kenney, pro UCP political action committees. We call them third party advertising no, third party advertisers in Alberta, but they're political action committees. So, have you seen any indication that there's stuff like that happening in BC, whereas the money's just going to third party groups or uh, or advertising campaigns elsewhere? You could point to like one or two smallish outfits running, but overall, the money actually hasn't found a new location yet. And that is also kind of not working particularly well for the liberals. And right now, from what I've heard, just talking to people, there's actually a decent chunk of money out there right now that just doesn't have a political home. And it's honestly a little surprising that the political right in BC hasn't been able to spin something up in the intervening years on that. On the partisan side, one of the things the NDP did was introduce a temporary per vote subsidy. So all of the parties that got in get a stipend from the government that's sort of tailing off towards, I think it's next year or 2022, it kind of dries up. But that was given as a interim measure that I think helped, you know, the liberals complained about it, but they were happy to see that as well. And the Greens, even before the election, had said, we're not accepting corporate or union donations anymore. Not sure if they'd ever had many, but they took a sort of holier than now, like, you have to live your values before you pass the legislation, whereas the NDP said, we're going to play by the rules, but then we're going to change the rules. The rules are changed now in either case. And yeah, like Scott said, the third parties aren't a huge thing here. I've looked at 
Facebook advertising. And there are a couple smaller outfits trying to do a little bit, but they don't seem too effective. Um, they're not super organized. There are very strict third-party advertising rules during a campaign in BC, and that includes a pre-writ period for a general, a scheduled general election. But since we're in a snap election, that didn't apply. Um, but you know, during the election, if you're a third party, which includes like people on the street who want to talk excessively loudly, Elections BC is of the opinion that basically everyone should be registering. And if you spend more than 10 grand, you need to be reporting. And I believe if you spend more than 10, and you need to be very clear about where your money's coming from, and it can't come from out of province even. So there's a lot of restrictions there. Okay, which, that's interesting. Which, you know, I work for a nonprofit, and I like have issues with that from the freedom of expression angle, because it gets very difficult, because you look at these rules and you go, it's not really worth it to try to figure out if we can talk, to try to talk. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll just be quiet for a few weeks. Yeah, I, th I think that was the case. I know some organizations in Alberta, when when they passed that kind of the the, the third party advertiser legislation, um, it took a while for people for a lot of organizations to figure out even exactly how it impacted them and how they needed to operate. And some of them, in terms of the last election, I'm aware of a few organizations that simply just sat it out because it was either just too complicated or the risk was too high for accidentally doing something that you you know that you might not have been, might not have supposed to be doing. So 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 we talked a bit about John Horgan and and the NDP. Can you tell me a little bit about um, Andrew Wilkinson and the Liberal Party? Now the Liberals are the are the concert are like the the center right business conservative party, right? And and or, or the conservative wing of, of the of, of BC's political spectrum for the most part. Am I correct? Yeah, it's a coalition party. So this is a party that is made up of federal liberals and federal conservatives. It's very much a big tent, but that tent also has some uh, tension within it between the two camps. And one of the ever-present challenges that any leader has is keeping the, the coalition together. We have a BC conservative party, they're a third party that like nobody even thinks about. They, 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 we just closed nominations yesterday. I think they managed to nominate 15 people overall, which is an improvement from last time where they had, I think, nine candidates out of 87. So overall, not a big factor in BC politics, but enough that if the coalition factors, there is a spot for the conservatives to actually go and that terrifies the brass of the party. So it's been a big fight to keep the thing together. The current leader uh, won after Christy Clark, the former premier who technically I suppose could won the 2017 election but lost the confidence vote afterwards and stepped down. Andrew Wilkinson was one of the six candidates who ran to replace her. And somewhat similar to what happened with Andrew Scheer, he was a candidate that didn't perform well on the first ballot, but throughout the night climbed up as other candidates got knocked off and went from fifth to first by the end of it. So came in with a fairly weak mandate. He's from the federal liberal wing of the party and has basically spent the last couple of years doing a drive up the base strategy, but hasn't really been very effective at expanding what should be a big tent liberal party outwards. And also has a slight problem where he's comes across as slightly arrogant and aloof, 
Uh, so he's a doctor and a lawyer. I think he was a Rhodes Scholar. Like, very much the detached intellectual type. And that hasn't been a huge success connecting with British Columbians overall. It's had a few awkward quotes come out and gaffes called uh, renting a wacky time of life. And in our largest city, more than half of households rent. Uh, Vancouver's famous for its high housing prices and high rents. And that didn't go over particularly well. And just overall, he, he hasn't really come across as someone like British Columbians really, you know, connect with. They, they might like his party, but I don't think Andrew Wilkinson's particularly popular overall. At the base of the BC Liberals at this point is rural BC, is the interior, it's up north. Uh, the Part of the reason they didn't keep a majority in 2017 is the suburbs of Metro Vancouver, especially like Surrey, Maple Ridge, uh, kind of, you know, you move out from Vancouver, all those little cities you pass through as you're driving into town, those seats, the NDP just picked off one by one. And a lot of them were very narrow races. Uh, a big promise in 2017 by the NDP was to eliminate bridge tolls on the main crossing on Highway 1. And that helped, you know, crystallize enough votes in the right ridings that it got them to, you know, like, like Scott said, they didn't technically win. They had one, a few less seats and slightly less votes, but they have government at the end of the day. So it counts as a win with an asterisk, at least. Nothing the Liberals have really done in the intervening years has shown a like strategy to pick those seats back up. They can definitely hold their seats in the interior. They've been a strong voice for LNG and like pipeline projects, for example. Um, they're, you know, neither party in BC is super pro Trans Mountain Pipeline because it doesn't offer BC the same benefits that it obviously offers the oil sands in Alberta. But Christy Clark famously did a, well, we have sort of five criteria that if it meets that, which it obviously was going to, we will support that pipeline. Whereas the NDP was like, we're going to fight tooth and nail against that pipeline. And it turns out that was a couple of court battles that they eventually lost. Yeah, so, so I mean, you, you you walked right into my next question, which which is about. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the Greens, but but I'll just jump into it. Like pipeline politics in Alberta has been like for the past six years, it has taken up so much oxygen in this province, and it finally took uh, a global pandemic to shift people's attention uh, and then the media's attention away from away from basically only talking about and, and their politicians attention basically almost only talking about pipelines uh, and that is the case from both Jason Kenney on the political right and Rachel Notley on the in the uh, political center right um, <laughs> it's one of my one of my jokes about the NDP in Alberta um, uh, but uh, you said it, it's it's very interesting because because it takes up so much attention here it, it almost feels like I mean, either we're in a completely different world in Alberta or British Columbia is in a completely different world. Because when we talk about pipelines, it's like, in a lot of ways, it seems like our politics just can't even talk to each other, even though it's it seems to be like, you know, the, in terms of pipelines in BC, uh, you know, there's probably not as much support in terms of almost unanimous support here in Alberta. But it, like, is anybody on the political campaign, like is anybody on the, on the election trail even talking about pipelines? I mean, even in the context of the federal government purchasing Trans Mountain? So I think Trans Mountain had largely been forgotten over the last 18 months, two years. Like even before COVID hit, uh, 
it had started to die down as a story as I think people kind of accepted that the court cases weren't going to fight. Like there are obviously still a lot of environmentalists in Metro Vancouver who are opposed to it on Grand ba on Vancouver Island, but Trans Mountain always had a like 50-50 kind of support in BC. It was actually slightly more than 50%. I think polls typically place it around 55 to 60% in that range, but with a lot like with a lot of issues it's one of those things where one side is very motivated about it and the other just kind of isn't like the people who support the pipeline which polls indicate are actually a majority of british columbians they're not going to go out to the polls and vote based on whether or not trans mountain gets built whereas the people who really oppose it and they're primarily concentrated in the lower mainland and vancouver island they're quite possibly will vote on the issue and because of that like the overall political climate is more anti-pipeline than the polls would suggest i think the pipeline that was really taking up all the political oxygen even as early or as most recent as february and early march was this coastal gas link pipeline which was going from the peace region in northern bc to kitimat on the shore and that was part of the lng projects that the BC Liberals first really tried to champion, and then the BC NDP actually took up even more forcefully uh, with extra subsidies to try to get this big Patronus plant built up there. And it had been approved, and it seems like it's moving forward still, but it seems like it's still on the edge of feasibility, given the fact that opening a massive liquefied natural gas plant in the middle of a climate emergency seems difficult, and it seems difficult to reconcile with our uh, climate targets in BC that we've set for ourselves. But the big issue there has been a very small bit of land represented by uh, the Wet'suwet'en Nation where hereditary leaders from there have claimed that it's cutting through their unceded territories and they have not granted consent for it to pass through and they don't want to grant consent for this construction. And the province has said, well, we got the elected chiefs on side from the reserve but there's a complicated band structure because of colonialism and imposing that on them. And that's what we spent actually a lot of the start of this year, even like as the pandemic was starting, that was still the political story that was taking up heat because it was the Horgan government that had brought under it the United Declarations, uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People into BC law right at the same time as they were seemingly pushing this pipeline through unceded territories. And so that, debate and that tension within the NDP was also becoming a flashpoint. Uh, but then a pandemic broke out and we stopped talking about it. Yeah, there, there were um, uh, solidarity protests here in Alberta as well. I went to one in downtown Edmonton in Edinburgh, I think it was in the Edinburgh Tower. Um, there was a, the whole lobby was, abso was absolutely packed. Um, and then there were pipe, uh, pardon me, um, uh, railroad crossings that were blocked. I know east, uh, west of Edmonton, there were railroad crossings that were blocked. And one of the, one of the responses of the, from this was, that the UCP government in Alberta actually passed legislation that made it, uh, you know, increased, stiff, introduced stiffer fines and increased, I think, increased jail time. This is one of Doug Schweitzer's uh, uh, moments as justice minister. Um, increased stiff fine or stiff fines and increased jail times for for people who block what the provincial cabinet determines to be critical infrastructure, and uh, you know that means pipelines. Um, 
pipelines, railways, uh, bridges, um, and and whatever I guess whatever the whatever the cabinet determines that to be. So it was it was a fairly it left. I think it, the the concern is it left it fairly broadly open, wide open in terms of what what the critical infrastructure could be determined to be. But but in response to these solidarity protests, the government was pretty eager here to jump on and and. Uh, talk about how they're punishing environmentalists and punishing people who are blocking pipelines and blocking resources. So there's, it's, it's very interesting. There's kind of a, a bit of, bit of a spill, a spillover over here and, and politicians in Alberta using kind of the politics of BC to, to push their own agenda, agenda in Alberta. So talking, just continue a little bit on, on pipelines and the issues with, with the Setwin in, in Northern British Columbia um, and climate change and environmental issues. The third party in the legislature, the party that signed an agreement to support the the NDP government, John Horgan, and they, there, was, there was a there was an agreement, and there were certain conditions um, that were laid out three and a half years ago. The Green Party, which won three seats in the last election, they've had a bit of a, a well significant change internally in terms of their of their leadership, from what I understand. So where do, where do the Greens fit right now in in BC? So the Greens. Uh, ran the last election under Andrew Weaver's leadership. He was elected in 2013, a climate scientist at, from University of Victoria. He won a very wealthy riding in the city of Victoria or just outside Oak Bay, Gordon Head. Uh, was fairly popular in terms of representing a moderate sort of centrist kind of green vision. He you know, a appealed to the Tories on bikes kind of stereotype. But also could talk about a more progressive side. So he was able to bring together a decent coalition, and he picked up two more seats in that 2017 election, uh, both on Vancouver Island. And so the Greens had, and they had held this and balance of power. Um, they managed to extract some good concessions from the provincial government, expanded Clean BC, which is our climate leadership plan, and generally just brought some good questions, I think, into government. I don't think anyone across the spectrum really viewed the Greens too negatively, at least until you get to the very partisan climate change deniers. But they're thankfully a vocal fringe in BC. Our climate, uh, our carbon tax, it's worth noting, was brought in under the BC Liberal government previously. So we have a fairly good consensus on trying to do at least something on climate change in this province. Uh, the Green, then Andrew Weaver, was always not a stereotypical politician because he came from academia. It was clear he was never super comfortable. He would have weird moments on Twitter where he'd get into arguments with unions or like teachers and start yelling at them. And people were like, maybe he just needs his phone taken away from him at times. And so halfway through this mandate or slightly after, he announced he wasn't going to run again. And eventually he said, all right, I'm going to step down as leader. And he also quit his party entirely. So usually when someone is no longer leader and wants to exit politics, they stick around in their caucus and you know, support the party. He just burned his membership card, which was weird because he, I guess, also had some personal issues with family health issues that he wanted to focus on. But it, the explanations never fully made sense. And then later, as we get into the green leadership contest to replace him, uh, the main contender was always Sonia First, now one of the sitting MLAs. And two other candidates came in, one who was the clear Andrew Weaver successor uh, vision. And Weaver got into a few Twitter spats with First and Now uh, over whether a four-day work week, which was one of her proposals, 
uh, was reasonable or not. He thought it was kooky. He described it as. And what else? he also took issue with some of the other directions the Greens were going. And so I think he worried they were going off too much in a eco-socialist or left-wing way. First now is not an eco-socialist, but she is on the progressive wing of the Greens. Um, she was elected and named leader a week before the election call. So they got caught pretty much on the back foot uh, trying to figure out who's going to be our candidates, uh, what are we going to run on, why are we even in this election? And most of their pitch, their uh, announcements so far have just been attacking the NDP for undermining this promise, this agreement that they signed, which said they would stick together legislating until the end of the next uh, fixed election date. Horgan, notably, during his why are we in an election, blamed the Greens multiple times for introducing instability. He notes that there were two bills that the Greens didn't gre uh, rubber stamp during the summer session that the Greens never agreed to fully sign on to, but because they offered some opposition to it. And one of these was a bill that had wide uh, civil society opposition around detaining people with uh, children with addictions issues while they sought uh, us treatment. So like weird arguments from Horgan and the Greens just really got caught off foot. Now the Greens, I think, managed to find 74 candidates out of 87. So they didn't manage to pull together a full slate, but they're clearly uh, not as prepared for this election as even the Liberals, let alone the uh, NDP. The Dave Berta podcast is brought to you in part by Park Power. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your energy from. Park Power has low overhead, and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much money you would save by visiting parkpower.ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. If you decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. Learn more at parkpower.ca. The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you in part by Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself at Edmonton Community Foundation or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. That's pretty amazing that you could, you could become a rainmaker for organizations here in Edmonton. You can find out more about Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. In in terms of of the Greens, their prospects for this election, I mean, they're they have a brand new leader. Um, they might not have been as prepared as as they'd hoped to be. I mean, like you just mentioned, they, they weren't able to field a full slate of candidates. Scott, what, what what do you think the Green Party's prospects are in this election? Because it seemed like they kind of had a bit of a breakthrough in the last election, winning winning three seats. Even they were all on Vancouver Island, but but they they won three seats. That's that's very significant. I don't think they're particularly great. So they won three seats. There was Andrew Weaver's seat of Oak Bay, Gordon Head, uh, Sonia First now, it's that right name, I can't remember, but basically uh, Cowichan Valley area, and then Adam Olson in North Saanich and the Islands. Uh, that was the writing I drew up in. And that writing's been fairly contested. Oftentimes, the parties are, three parties are within fairly close range of each other. I think he's a fairly popular MLA and will probably be able to hold on unless there's an absolute NDP sweep. Uh, 
but where there is going to be some challenges is holding on to Oak Bay Gordon Head. The candidate that got nominated there by the Green Party is not someone with a lot of name recognition. And she's going up against former federal NDP MP Murray Rankin. So that's going to be a fairly tough seat, I think, for the Green Party to hold on. Previously, it had been a liberal seat, but as we alluded to a bit earlier, the province is polarizing a lot more kind of urban rural lines. Kind of like how you've seen the country and other parts of uh, Canada polarize as well. And I think that means it's less likely they're going to sit seed there and be able to, the liberals will be able to bring it back to a liberal riding. Uh, so that one's going to be one to watch. I think they'll be, they're better than even odds, I think, of holding on to two seats, that the, the two people who finished the term as green MLAs. But it doesn't look like they'll be able to keep Oak Bay Gordon head and there isn't really a, a next obvious riding for them to pick up. There is a couple ones in the interior. They came in either a second or a very close third, but overall it's just not a clear spot where the next riding and the riding after that, where they can get to four or six MLAs. So they're more or less in a position where they're trying to hold their current gains, I think. It's a kind of stereotypical story in politics that the junior partner in a coalition type situation always gets screwed. Uh, they get to wear the blame for everything that goes bad and they don't get to have any of the successes. Uh, I think this happened in Ontario when there was an NDP liberal coalition uh, federally, I think we've seen it happen. Smaller parties have a lot of trouble after they like help a government succeed, being able to capitalize on that. So first now, for example, got into politics on some like very specific regional issues around professional reliance and it being undermined. Effectively, uh, the local scientists who recommended some environmental regulations in her area were overstepped by the politicians. And so she felt that was inappropriate and got into politics primarily to change our oversight of professional reliance, which the more you start to talk about it, the for I think most people, the more they glaze over. Like it's very important stuff that the bureaucracy should have some freedom to be able to recommend things that aren't always politically popular. But getting that across is difficult and it's not necessarily as politically sexy or as motivating as many other issues. And so I think First Now's biggest personal challenge is that her politics do tend to be on the like wonkier, nerdier, like how can we do technical changes to improve our democracy, which are all things that I personally like and I think are generally good ideas, but I don't know that they're as exciting or going to do as well in an election campaign. The one issue I could actually see them getting a little bit of traction on is Site C. It's a large hydroelectric dam that's currently under construction on the Peace River. This was a project the Liberals brought in, and after tw the 2017 election, the confidence and supply agreement had a provision where they would initiate a review of the project. It ultimately 
came back with the government deciding too much money had been spent at this point. They needed to plow ahead because you can either, you know, waste a bunch of money or for, you know, another $6 billion or so, I think it was at the time, get a dam out of it rather than spend, I think it was $4 billion just on site remediation. Um, but in the intervening time, there's been some geotechnical issues arising with that. There's concerns over the stability of the area around the dam and its budget has been blown up quite a bit. When the NDP was in opposition, they weren't particularly fond of Site C, but since they gave it the stamp to go ahead after the review, they kind of are wearing it too. So you can have a situation where if more bad press comes out about it, the Liberals and the NDP are on one side and the Greens are kind of the last party left to be the ones to bang the drum about that. And that could be a potential issue that they could actually seize on. So what are what are the or for, i guess for, for, for size, are there are there any other political parties that uh, that we haven't talked about we talked to you mentioned you alluded to a conservative party existing um is, are there any other parties that are going to play a real factor in this campaign not a real factor the libertarians technically have more candidates than the conservative party of bc uh, but i think in the last election the conservatives got half a percent of vote the libertarians maybe got one or two just by running more candidates there's a couple constituencies where an independent might play a significant role. I think Chile, one of the Fraser Valley ridings that's fairly strong liberal has a very popular independent uh, running against Laurie Thronis actually is one of the very deep social conservatives in the BC Liberal Caucus who many have called for him to be removed from caucus for his homophobic statements and connections. Uh, a popular councillor who was one of the few in that area who voted for a pride sidewalk because or a rainbow sidewalk crossing uh, is running against him as an independent and might be able to split the vote in that. But aside from little situations like that, it's really a three-way race at most in most writings. So in terms of BC, look, looking at the political landscape BC, we talked about the political parties. Um, geographically, I mean, most, if, if I understand this correctly, like most British Columbians, most of the ridings will be in, I guess, what I would, what, what has, what is called or has been called the lower mainland. So basically the Fraser Valley all the way to Vancouver, right? That's kind of the, where most of the writings are. And then there's, can you, can you, can you kind of just explain about, the, yeah. the regions? Yeah, about half the people in the province. So BC has about okay. 5 million people, I think. And two you and just a half crossed million. over to 5 million. Yeah, okay. This year. And two and oh, a half million live in Metro Vancouver and the suburbs of that. So a lot of the writings are there. There's don't have the number on top of my head, but it's about a quarter on Vancouver Island, the next most populous, and then the rest are kind of through the interior. Uh, BC has somewhat disparate, because similar to Alberta, uh, our population density is so low in the north, we have some very large geographic ridings that no government wants to make geographically bigger in a redistricting. So we have some ridings that have half as many people as a Metro Vancouver riding in the north, just because to change it would look too too onerous to make an MLA have to cover that area. What's more likely to happen is we'll eventually just add more seats to Metro Vancouver. So the BC Liberals do have somewhat of a baked in advantage with those larger, less populous seats where they tend to do well. Uh, but most of the ridings are, you know, Metro Vancouver, so city of Vancouver and the suburbs, 
lower Vancouver Island. And then there's, you know, there's a few around Kelowna and through the Okanagan has a good number of seats. I think the only one the NDP tends to pick up down that way is in Nelson, where all the retired hippies live. And they win one or two others along the coast in the north, like Skeena, I believe. Or no, sorry, Stekine. Now, now there, I noticed, I read a news story, there are a number of a number of former members of parliament who are running in, in this election, former NDP members of parliament. I heard there was a bit of controversy with Nathan Cullen's nomination and and, uh, and there were a few others. I think the the former MP for um, for the Cranbrook area is running. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the in the in the Kootenai area, but apparently he's running down there. So I thought, look, looking at the kind of gl glancing over the list of candidates, I, I thought I thought that was quite interesting. But that gives a good perspective, um, uh, gives me a good perspective, and I hope to our listeners about what the kind of geographic uh, politics are are British Columbia and where you know maybe where the, where the parties are a little stronger. Well, and even within the city of Vancouver, it's a bit more different colored. So you have some parts of the city of Vancouver that are way more orange. They tend to be the lower income bits on the east side, whereas the single fat, the large mansion districts in the south end of the city of Vancouver tend to be a bit more liberal and actually False Creek, which is right beside downtown Vancouver, like where Science World is for anyone who's been there. That is held by a liberal former mayor of Vancouver, Sam Sullivan, but that one went to I think it was within a couple hundred votes in the last election. I think it was 400 was roughly the split yeah. there. So that's a, you know, that's top of the list for the NDP to try to steal back or to take in this election. So you, you mentioned it was kind of a boring kind of not, not exactly an exciting first week in terms of, of what the, what the parties and the politicians are talking about. I heard something about, um, uh, I was listening, listening to one of your recent episodes talking about the Liberals promising to get rid of PST for a year or something and then phase back in a new provincial sales tax, um, which as, as an Albertan who's been advocating to get a provincial sales tax here because it just makes sense, uh, just seems kind of like a crazy idea. Um, but what, what could you guys foresee being the big issues um, going into the, the, the next three weeks of the election campaign? I say this ca caveat-wise that I know that you know the big issues in the first week of the campaign are seem to be very rarely the big issues in the in the final week that, that voters make their mind use to decide who they're going to vote for. But but Scott, could you give us an idea of what what are the big issues that are simmering that, that might that Albert, Albertans looking at the BC election might might hear about? I am honestly not sure what the big question or the ballot box question is going to be this election. So week one was all about whether or not John Horgan was right to call an election. Uh, this past week, we've had the PST promise by the Liberals being like the big one that kind of dominated the discussion. But overall, the election's kind of been in the background for a lot of British Columbians, I think. And I don't think any party has really done a good job of formulating why this election is happening and what the main question British Columbians need to answer is the NDP tried to play this off as a do you want a continuity of government a strong stable sorry I meant the uh, NDP my majority government uh, to they, they've literally bore the Harper line on that one as they uh, campaign for a majority and the Liberals they've not really found a good line of attack they, they haven't had a good line of attack since 2017 and they're still struggling for one now 
it's go there isn't necessarily an issue that really seems to be dominating the the covid response wasn't particularly political here our legislature kind of all rallied together and passed a bunch of unanimous bills uh, early on in the pandemic so there isn't like a big division there some controversy around the school openings but even that was fairly minor this overall there you, you have the existing fault lines that have in BC that have continued, but no real clear question that needs to be answered by British Columbians. So like you said, it, it's one of those things in elections where something will come up that isn't always predictable in week one, but right now there, there does not appear to be an obvious thing that will emerge, I think. So it's going to be a real fight between the different parties to try and find that. And uh, I'm honestly not sure where they're going to come out. Yeah, we're waiting still for the platforms to actually drop. The NDP, I think, is supposed to come out next week. I thought the Liberals was supposed to come out this past week, but it might come out next week now. Uh, the Greens are probably still writing theirs. I think the Greens have the advantage because they're the party that most often tends to just put their members' policy into a platform, whereas the other parties try to do something to, you know, political with it and don't actually listen to their party members, whereas the Greens tend to be not too democratic, but <laughs> just take those ideas. The other weird unknown about this election is something like half a million people have already requested mail-in ballots. Like the government and the NDP and a lot of people are recognizing that that's probably the safest way for most people to vote. Uh, Elections BC has assured people that in-person voting, whether it's advanced or on day of election, will be safe. But for, mo for many people, mail-in ballots are fairly convenient and an easy way to do it. The unknown that that introduces is, A, it'll take a long time to count them. So we might not actually know the results on election night. It might take a couple of weeks. Yeah, um, so that's fine. That's how long it took in 2017 for us to finally <laughs> count the last writings. The, the thing there, though, is the election species was actually in the process of getting more machines for the mail-in ballots. But because the election got sprung early, they didn't have enough. So I think they were... I can't remember the number they gave, but there, there, there's a limit of, a, I think, a few hundred thousand mail-in ballots they can process on election night or shortly after there. So we're, we're going to be in a longer counting cycle than normal. And that part of that is an outcome of the early election. It also introduces this uncertainty about if the election campaign changes and suddenly the NDP tank, how many votes are locked in early? So the NDP is pushing a lot of ads right now, encouraging people to vote early, get those ballots in, because they're up significantly in the polls right now. So if they can get those votes locked in, it doesn't really matter what the rest of the campaign does if everyone's already voted, because then the polls that are showing them leading 45% to 30% will give them a significant lead. So mail-in ballots is a big uh, a big change going into this election compared to previous elections. Have you noticed anything else, um, I guess, how COVID, how the pandemic has changed how candidates and parties are campaigning? Well, they're doing fewer in-person events. And as a result, it's going much more dependent on uh, the media cycle and everything else. So something that got noted this week was the two main parties are each trying to rush out their early morning big announcements by like 10 a.m. so they can dominate like the day's social media discussions about whatever they're putting out. That is because of years and years of 
journalist layoffs and even some of the papers struggled a lot during COVID and lost good reporters. There's just fewer reporters covering it. And I get the sense, because we both follow and talk to a lot of journalists, I get the sense they're all like crying inside. They're just like dying. They were already tired before this election. And then the election got sprung and they're like, are you kidding me? This is too much. I don't want this. Please stop. And it was the journalists who were most mad about it, I think. Like, I don't think most voters were happy to go to the polls, but the journalists were really upset. I feel yeah, but most voters weren't happy to go to the polls. So the some of the initial polling we got suggested that about, I think it was 57% plus or minus a few British Columbians weren't thrilled about an early election. Now, it, it hasn't actually translated into anything yet on the party popularity, but I mean, this is 2020. It's a year of uncertainty and... I, the NDP are playing with a bit of a risk here that, you know, one big outbreak in a school or something could turn this election around in quite a drastic way. It's 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 I mean it seemed pretty clear that um, you know re reading the, the the news coverage from BC that uh, I mean the, the first week they were talking the first couple of days people were talking about well why you know the reporters were talking about you know asking questions about why an election now well. I mean, when parties are popular and, you know, there's an opportunity to, for, to go from a minority to majority, it's pretty clear that that's, you know, that's, that's the big reason why, why a party would go to the polls. So it will be interesting to see um, uh, if, uh, if uh, a lack of enthusiasm about an election actually has, uh, has an impact on, on that or whether, whether the, the parties will, will get, their, their, um, get their voters out to, uh, to either, I guess, mail in their ballots or, or show up at the, at the polling stations on election day, which is... October twenty fourth, if I'm correct, two days before Saskatchewan's. Oh, that, well, that, and that's the other thing is is this is great from Alberta Alberta perspective. We have two elections going on on, on both sides of us. So um, I'm 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 really I uh, was really thrilled today to talk talk to you today, Scott. And and the end is 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 there anything else that we've missed that you think Albertans uh, listening to this podcast might be interested in, in in terms of the BC election? The thing I'm looking for in this election, and the thing that would make it that there's an actual reason that isn't just partisan power is like ambitious ideas and like the parties actually pitching what a recovery would look like from different angles. The liberals have started on the, you know, PST holiday idea and have talked a bit more about getting tough on crime, especially around homelessness in tent cities. Uh, I'm looking for, you know, more compassionate, progressive, pitches from the NDP, something that's more ambitious than what they've been doing. Uh, they've been trying to roll out $10 a day childcare, but it's been slow. And as someone who has a one-year-old, it would be great to have that more readily available everywhere in the province, not just for me, but for everyone who wants to get back to work and get their kids out of the house somewhere. Uh, so see, really, I'm looking forward to what's in the platforms. I don't expect we'll see debates over uh, whether intersectionality is some cultural Marxist plot. Thankfully, we don't have that strain in BC politics yet. We haven't somehow gotten the reactionary populists in our BC Liberals, or if they are, they're the quiet ones. But who knows, maybe after Andrew Wilkinson loses, the next leadership debate of the BC Liberals could swing very wildly. That's kind of what I'm keeping an eye on the most is where the BC Liberals go. They, they were in power for 16 years, as like the NDP likes to remind everyone, and their post-power time has not gone particularly well. But they're a sizable chunk of the province, and 
determinant of how a lot of our politics play out. And so far, they've been kind of stuck in using the same, you know, warmed over talking points that right of center parties have been using for the past 20 years. And that clearly, I don't think works anymore. You've started to see the federal conservatives actually pivot away from that a bit with uh, Aaron O'Toole. And I'm kind of curious to see where the liberals go, what they can offer that actually makes sense for kind of center-right politics in, you know, the second and third decades of the 21st century. And I don't think Andrew Wilkinson's going to be the one to lead us there, but maybe he is. And if not, at least his crushing defeat as looks likely should change things up a bit. And hopefully the, the next leadership will be uh, an interesting debate of ideas. Well, I know that, uh, I mean, myself and uh, and a lot of Albertans will be watching uh, with great curiosity to see what, what happens in BC in this election and, and what happens uh, what happens after the election to the to the political parties in terms of Andrew Wilkinson, uh, John Horgan, uh, whether the green what the Greens look like after this campaign and and, and how that'll impact uh, you know federal politics and and provincial relations between our between our two provinces. So, thank you very much, Ian and Scott. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today and sharing your wealth of knowledge and understanding of British Columbia politics, uh, which sometimes looks very confusing to a lot of Albertans. So this has been has been very helpful. And I, and I, and I know that our listeners will be uh, will be very, uh, very appreciative of this. Um, check out the Politicoast podcast at politicoast.ca or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having us. And Thank you, Dave. Thanks. You mentioned in there that Maybe Alberta's its own little world. Maybe BC's its own little world. I think the key point is we're not Toronto. That's <laughs> we can unite around that, right? <laughs> uh, and thanks again to our producer Adam Rosenhart for making this podcast sound so great. Adam, you're awesome. Uh, the Dayberta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at Dayberta or on the Dayberta Facebook page, or you can send us an email if you still do that at podcast at daveberta.ca. And we would love it if you can leave a review. If you enjoyed the podcast and, and this and previous episodes, feel free to leave a review or you download. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>